Hey friends, welcome to the Rhythms for Life podcast, where each week we talk about rhythms for building resilience so you can take charge of your mental, spiritual, and relational health. These ideas come from Rebecca's best-selling book, Building a Resilient Life, How Adversity Awakens Strength, Hope, and Meaning. So grab your copy, invite your friends, and let's build resilience together. Welcome to another edition of Rhythms for Life. Today I'm solo, but I hope that's not a disappointment. I'm going to have an incredible conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson, one of Rebecca and I's favorites. And it's going to be my chance to really dig into the questions that I have about psychology, about our current mental health crisis, about what this means for us as parents, and really how do we become more and more resilient and how do we embrace things like suffering in our lives? This isn't easy. We don't want to suffer, but what is the point of suffering? We're going to talk about the ways in which we can approach mental health counseling. Should we medicate or not? Some of the difficult questions that always seem to come up when it relates to our questions about the types of crises that we're all walking through. And so listen in to that. I also want to encourage you, we only have, I think, four seats available right now uh, for our Rhythms retreat that's taking place next week, November 16 and 17 in Franklin. So hurry if you've been thinking about coming and or you're local and you can drive in you don't have to get a flight just join us um there's a few seats remaining we're so excited to be with you guys those of you who are listening and you're making the trip and you're going to be with us we couldn't be more excited about these two days and what we've planned and the conversations that are going to ensue and the beginnings of what we know it's going to bring back to your home and to your life and soon we'll be announcing our retreat schedule for 2024 so those of you who couldn't get in and be a part of these retreats. You'll be hearing more about opportunities in 2024 when Rebecca and I plan to host two retreats here in Franklin, Tennessee in the new year. Now, I want to also encourage you, and for some of you, it might be too early, but I'll tell you, we're the family that loves the holidays, and we don't shy away from moving quick when a holiday's coming and making sure we're prepared. In fact, you will find a Christmas tree up in our home before Thanksgiving, okay? We're just that family. We like to do it, and the tree will last a lot longer than most people think is acceptable, but we don't care because we enjoy having the twinkle of lights throughout some more of the winter than maybe a lot of people do. Um, But what I want to encourage you with is as you're thinking about Thanksgiving, okay, this is one of those great opportunities to connect with the people that you love. And one favorite thing Rebecca and I have done for so many years is Friendsgiving. Now, you've heard that term, I'm sure. And if you haven't, go look it up. But the idea is creating space, maybe not on Thanksgiving Day, but on another moment near Thanksgiving, where you pull together your friends and you actually have a moment where you're giving thanks for your friends. And all of the things that we do around Friendsgiving, Rebecca has created in a simple PDF guide that allows you to create that entire experience, including recipes, including her turkey recipe. And I got to tell you, it's the best. She creates a beautiful turkey that tastes so good. And I love it, and I think you'll love it. So if you're thinking about how are we going to do Thanksgiving, and you're the one tasked with the job of creating the perfect turkey, I'm going to tell you, you're going to learn from Rebecca how to do that. You can go to RebeccaLyons.com slash Friendsgiving. But not only that, you're going to get five recipes that we make. So this is in our home. This is how we do it. You're going to receive eight conversation cards for laughter and connection, eight scripture cards that help you during that dinner give gratitude and reflection around scripture and the truths that really guide us and ground us during our lives. You're going to have menu cards that are designed, place-setting cards, all meant to create a special space. We know in our world today with so much isolation 
that there are people in your community, your neighborhood, friends that you have that maybe don't always get the chance to have an intentional dinner and an intentional conversation of giving thanks, of recognizing how much you love them. Well, this is one of those opportunities to do that. And don't feel alone in it. Don't feel like it's too daunting. We've tried to do the work for you. Go to RebeccaLyons.com slash Friendsgiving to learn more. Now, as we move into this conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson, he is absolutely, for Rebecca and I, been someone who's made a big difference in our life. He's someone who has studied neuroscience, neurobiology. He's a psychiatrist. He's written multiple books that have really shaped the way many people are approaching psychiatry today. And I would say, I would dare to say he's been very ahead of the curve, very ahead of the curve on asking some deeper questions, more than maybe some people have been asking over the last couple of decades about how to deal with the mental health crisis we find ourselves in. He's the new author of The Deepest Place, Suffering and the Formation of Hope. We'll talk to him about that. And what does it mean to think well about suffering? But for now, sit back, pull in the people that you love, the people that you're doing life with, the people in your community, or share it with them, because I think you're going to find that this conversation we're about to have is going to be one that encourages you both at a spiritual level, but also at a very practical level of what does it mean for us to be connected in our lives and why that's so critical and so valuable, especially in the moment we're living in. Kurt, welcome back to the Rhythms for Life podcast. It's so great to have you again. Thank you, man. Always a pleasure to be with you. Well, Rebecca and I just love you. We love, I mean, you have shaped, I can't tell you how much your writing time we've had the privilege to spend with you has impacted and influenced. Mm. I know Rebecca's work, her writing, Mm. my life. As a result, you've just been a guide for us to navigate things. And what, what has been so rewarding to watch is how the things you've been saying for over a decade are showing up now in across the world of people who are dealing with mental health, who are trying to navigate what's happening uh, in our crisis. It feels like we've gone through these phases of if someone was suffering from anxiety, panic, depression, it was immediately to medicate them. And, and that was the answer. And you couldn't even suggest that that wasn't the main answer, right, to solve mm-hmm. someone's problem. Mm-hmm. But man, the conversation's changing. It's like the conversation's saying, what do we need to be asking at a deeper level about what's really happening with the human person? And I feel like that's the questions you've been asking since you began writing your books, since we all began learning from you. So I'm curious if you're seeing that similar shift take place uh, at the broader level where people are starting to ask some deeper questions that you've been probing for a long time. Yeah, I, I gave that's a it's a great observation. I I do I you know you do get the sense that in the mental health field uh people have been over the last 20 years been gradually more willing to ask the questions that are reaching into the fundamental uh domains of what it means for us to be human. Uh you know and to that end one of the things that I have been recently over the last probably couple of years been saying to patients when they present with their depression and anxiety and eating behaviors and this and that and so forth. And of course, the impression is that there's something wrong with them, which is not uh, untrue. It, it, it's not, it would not be incorrect to say that there's something wrong. Of course, that is the case. Um, but the, the fundamental um, assumption is that there's something like my brain is not working right. My body is not working right. There's something wrong with the way to which I will say to them on a regular basis, 
uh, I don't want to take away that way of talking about things. We're not saying that's untrue. But I also want to say to you that, in fact, your brain is working perfectly normally. Your brain is doing exactly what we would expect it to do, given the circumstances under which you are requiring it to live. Your brain is acting like the smoke detector in my kitchen when I'm cooking bacon. I hate that thing when I'm cooking bacon in my because it's just bacon. There's nothing on fire. But my smoke detector seems to think that it needs to like let everybody know that there's a problem. Now, the smoke detector noise is a problem. It's probably but it is not the issue. The issues is like I'm cooking bacon. And when I'm anxious and when I'm depressed, we're not suggesting that those experiences should be fun or okay. We're not saying that at all. Yes, these are painful. These are experiences of great suffering for many people. At the same time, uh, you know, it's become fashionable for us to say, oh, I have this thing called depression or anxiety or whatever. And it is the thing that we need to talk about when, in fact, we're saying that's actually your smoke detector going off. Mm-hmm. It is drawing our attention to different questions. It's drawing our attention to the fact that you're anxious for a reason, that your depression is your brain and body saying, I can no longer regulate my anxiety the way that I've been asking myself to do it. And it's saying like, I'm not doing this anymore. And so as we ask these deeper questions of what is the story that you believe that you're living in? Who are the people that are helping you tell the story about your life the way that you do? What are the practices that you enter into with your body that are actually reinforcing the shame that you walk around with? Ways that you don't even know that you're doing. How is it that you would be surprised that you're having this experience when you actually have absolutely no connection with other human beings in a community when we know that if the brain is going to survive, let alone flourish, it must necessarily be in that kind of a community? Mm. And so we get to, and and this is why actually even the growth in our awareness of the mechanics of the mind and relational interactions actually have helped us get to these deeper questions that are not primarily about science, Mm -hmm. but that are primarily about relationships and the way that we are intended to live from the beginning. Kurt, this is to me just complete breakthrough for people listening right now. It's so freeing to hear your brain's actually doing what it was meant to do. So now we can ask some bigger questions about how you're living your life. What types of rhythms are in place? How do you interact with the with the people around you? I know uh, Rebecca and I were talking to a friend recently whose daughter had a panic attack. Just you know, and and immediately said, "I need to see a counselor." And Rebecca's advice to this mom was was actually, "I don't know if she needs a counselor. I think she might need to just have some time with you to process through." what just happened and what's going on in her life and 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 moving conversations away from just this um, knee jerk which maybe at one point was medication and now the knee jerk is you need a counselor and and again I know you do counseling so we're not trying to say counselors we we have counselors we get the need for counselors but it's that knee jerk that every time I walk through some suffering in my life I walk through something that's difficult that we need some outside input um, from an expert or from medical or science to actually help us when maybe what we're needing is time with the person that loves us to attune themselves with us and to walk with us through that. And I know you've written about that in your new book um, that just came out. And I, I think 
when you talk about it, the book's called The Deepest Place, Suffering and the Formation of Hope. The power of people in our lives becomes so paramount to walk into these healing journeys. Can you can you describe why that's so important, even from a neurobiology perspective? Why does the science tell us that that's important? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to be clear and say that there definitely are those moments and times and spaces when psychotherapy and or psychopharmacology or other somatic interventions are absolutely necessary. Because, you know, when the fire alarm goes off because there actually is a fire in my house, um, I need to be able to take action in ways that are commensurate. And so we can have people who are so depressed because they, so because they haven't and they haven't gotten out of bed in two weeks they have no appetite, they're not sleeping. Uh, simply being with somebody is in and of itself is not necessarily going to be the answer that they need. And so I want to make sure that our, our listeners hear that there are uh, specific situations and settings in which those kinds of somatic materials, psychopharmacological or others kinds of interventions, psychotherapy are absolutely necessary. I think part of the challenge, Gabe, is that even when we say things like, oh, you may not need a counselor, let alone pharmacology. What you need is to be with someone who can attune to you and so forth. Um, the reality is that most people, uh, perhaps I, most people have not done the work that Rebecca and you have done. Most people have not necessarily uh, done the kind of work that enables them to recognize that when we say it's important for you to connect with your friends, if you were to swing a cat around the room and ask, how many people have friends? Everybody throws their hand up. And then, but then when you ask them, tell me what does it mean for somebody to be your good friend? Tell me, what, what does that actually look like? And I would say probably three out of five people, four out of five people are going to describe relationships that would not necessarily qualify for what you mean when you talk about friendship. Hmm. These are people who, yeah, we, we go golfing once a week. We do this. We, you know, we have dinner with each other, so forth and so on. But if you were to say, well, tell me, how many of your friends know what your top three fears are. How many of them know? Most of them, I would dare say, would have no idea what that. And, and, and because that's the case, it is the case because we have gotten so far away, even in our religious communities, from being trained to know what does it mean to actually be known by others and, and, and follow Paul's prescription from the eighth chapter of 1 Corinthians. What does it mean for us to love God by being known by God, by being known by other people? We don't have a lot of practice or a lot of skill sets in doing this, which, of course, is why counseling is what's so often recommended. Right. Because the wisdom that we actually long for from our communities and friends actually isn't as easily available as we'd like to make it be so. And so, you know, uh, this is what and, and yet with with Paul, Paul was saying in, in you know, in, in this chapter in Romans that I explore in the new book, this is a community. That whose intended purpose is to be an outpost of the development of wisdom. It's wisdom. And, and, and this is what we are doing in psychotherapy. We, what we are wanting to do is we are wanting to provide, ultimately, that's what we're really talking about. We do it in a lot of different ways that involve asking particular kinds of questions. But these are questions that we would love for people to be asking in their families. We don't have to just, you know, like, we don't just have to ask them in the psychotherapy consultation room. And the more able we are, I think, to practice doing the kind of uh, work that we're doing, trying to do in these confessional communities, the more we we, we can actually uh, become aware of and practiced in the way of wisdom that we read about in the book of Proverbs, for example, 
Man, that's really good. And thank you for the corrective on how I was talking about that, because you're right. I, I think I think I was being a little too brash there to, to suggest it can just be solved by connecting with someone. And, and I think you've made it very clear why that might not always be the case. And it's interesting how today we we do need to go to professionals, and they're they're professionals that know how to ask good questions, who know how to sit and listen. And to your point, we've lost a lot of that in our families, friendships, life, the busyness of life. In fact, I know we see the mental health crisis that's developed amongst our young people. It's not just young people, but but data showing that girls right now, teen girls are at their highest rate uh, of suicide that we've ever experienced. I mean, those types of crisis demand bigger answers and and I think some of it could be found in what you just described is is do do these teenage girls do our children feel like they even have our attention or are we as parents so distracted by our technology and lives and busyness and just trying to make ends meet financially whatever it might be has life just become so crazy busy that we've we've lost this human connection and that's part of what's contributing to this crisis well, you know, it's it's interesting. You're you're raising a good point, and, and I and I and so now I want to kind of come back again, uh, in in that I I want to say yes, there it's absolutely the case that there are times when when people need to see a counselor and and may need to see a psychiatrist even, and at the same time, uh, we would say uh, it's easy for us. You know, you you we we come to the professionals, and we and we're we're tempted to want to you know, provide a diagnosis, pathologize this, treat this, uh, when what we are also trying to say, when you come to see me, I'm going to want to say to you, look, this is not primarily about a diagnosis to be treated. This is about asking the question, what do you want your family to become? And you'll say, well, I want my kid to grow up and have friends and go to a good school. And that's what I want my kids to do. And I would say, actually, that's not where the answer to the question begins. The answer to the question begins like, well, who do you want to become as the parents? Who do you want to become? And who is enabling you to do that? Well, you know, I've got a, I've got work and I got this and I got that. And I'm like, hang on. Uh, we can't give people what we do not have. I don't care if it's money. I don't care if it's water or I don't care if it's a flourishing life. I can't give my children a flourishing life if I myself am not living a flourishing life. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Has come so that we would live life in such a way that it is not one of scarcity. But Gabe, we're living our lives like we think like the world is coming to an end tomorrow. That's how anxious we are. But I wouldn't be surprised that my children would be so anxious, given that they're living in a house with anxious parents. And so, again, to those who are listening to this, my guess is that most people who are listening to this are not 15 to 18-year-olds. They are the parents of 12 to 18-year-olds to whom I would say, who are the people, who are the ones, who are the people who are in your lives who are coming to find you? in the spaces where you are anxious. I mean, this is the work that you and Rebecca are all about. Like this notion that like, if if we are gonna submit to the rhythms of life that God has placed before us in which to live, doing so actually puts us in a position for us to become 
that enables us then to have what we want to give to our children. But until we are actually doing the work that has been put before us to do, we can't expect our children to be anything other than what they are becoming. Yeah, yeah, that's the... Man, that's the convicting part about all this, right? Is we can't give what we don't have. And it takes humility. It takes discovery. It takes time. It takes reflection. It takes having someone else. I know Rebecca's been that for me, someone that I could process through feelings I could not describe. I had a hard time putting words to it. And she was able to be patient with me, you know, and just sit with me and, and listen and, and help me find the words at times, or give me the space maybe I needed to 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 reflect and, and invite God into that space with me. And and it's through all of that that I've been able to any any amount of healing I've been able to experience has been because I had that other human being in my life that loved me enough to to walk through that. But I'll say, Kurt, when we adopted Joy five years ago, I, re- I remember Rebecca and I we were required by the adoption agency to read these books on parenting, and one of the books was on attachment. Honestly. I don't think I'd ever heard the word attachment until five years ago, okay? Now, I know it seems like everybody's talking about that these days, but I I had not heard these words. And I read this book about attachment, and Rebecca and I looked at each other as we're going through this course together and said, I can't believe no one required us to read these books before we had kids. Like, the moment you find out you're pregnant, there should be a course that every church, every I don't know. Every every body of fellowship in our country, our nation, should be requiring parents to go through something because we realized how much we had missed out on attachment ideas with our kids. And we were like, okay, well, we're getting another chance with Joy, but she's going to be five, so we've missed some crucial years. But it started to explain so much about some of the issues we felt like we were having relationally even with our own teenagers at that time. And and we've done the work to go back, I would say, and, and from what we've learned, try to be part of a healing journey with them. But it feels like attachment is something that, um, for those who are listening and they're like, yeah, I've not adopted a child. I've, I've not read a lot of books on attachment. Could you describe how much attachment's important to a child feeling a sense of meaning and purpose? Right. Well, I would say it means absolutely everything. And we would say that this, in many respects, is, you know, uh, when we read in the scriptures multiple times, I am with you. When God says, I am with you, he's not with us like the chair is with us in the room. He is with us and attuned to us. And, you know, it, it, and we, we would say like, well, maybe even many of our listeners, uh, we might say, well, they don't have children. No, but everybody who's listening was a child at one point. And we've all had some kind of experience in which we know what it's like for us to be in distress and either have or not have someone else attuned to us for the purpose of enabling us to regulate that distress. Even if that distress is coming because we ourselves have done something that we shouldn't have done. Like we've like we've run through the kitchen too fast, slipped and you know, cut our eye open. Like we're in distress because and it's my but somebody's going to attune to me in a way that is without condemnation and yet still requiring things of me, but being present with curiosity about my emotional distress. That process of attachment, of attuning to our child to give our child the opportunity to attach to us in a secure fashion, which doesn't mean the child just gets whatever they want. No, because secure attachment, as it turns out, 
for it to develop requires the experience of ruptures that are repaired. It requires that. And so the real question becomes not just what am I doing for my children and their attachment, because I can't actually ask and answer that question before I've asked and answered the question, what as a parent, as an adult, what is my attachment experience like? Because we know that the single most powerful thing that you can do to help the child develop secure attachment to you is to make sense of your own story. It's the single most powerful variable in helping a child develop secure attachment. You can go to the right parenting classes. You can read all the right books. We can do all these kinds of things. But if I'm not making sense of my own story, if I'm not developing secure attachment in places where it's insecure right now, then I'm not going to be able once again to give my child what they need. And again, this whole notion of creating secure attachment is not to imply that children are never required to do anything hard or are never going to have to suffer or are never going to get their nose bloodied or their knees skinned. In fact, we know secure attachment takes place in the middle of those kinds of moments actually happening. Yet those children or adults in your boardroom or colleagues or your spouse or your pastor, it requires us to have those same kind of experiences and yet allow others to come for us so that we can work through that. This is where attachment research is so crucially important. And again, I'm just going to say, like, I know you and Rebecca. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons I love being with you is because like you guys are willing to get after it. Nobody does this perfectly. I don't do this perfectly. You don't do, Rebecca, we, we don't do this perfectly. Nobody does. Jesus is not worried about us doing it perfectly. He wants us in the game. Hmm. And I love being with people who are in the game because uh, this is really hard to do. And as we, you know, as we like to say, the, the brain can do a lot of hard work for a really long time, as long as it doesn't have to do it by itself. Hmm. And so that you're even asking these questions, that you're even offering things like this and other things for, for parents who, who really want to do the next good, right, beautiful thing with their children. We would say, we want you to do that. And to do that, we want you to be cared for as much as any care that you're offering for your kids. Mm, yeah, that's such a good point. And thank you for your kindness. You've you've helped us so much um, walk through our journey and continue to help us find words and language to to describe and understand our stories, which has been uh, just an incredible gift to I know our relationship, but also our our family. Um, I want to close around topic of your latest book. I mean, you, you talked about the anatomy of the soul, the soul of shame, the soul of desire. I mean, we were really moving up and to the right here. And and Kurt, <laughs> it, it was like the things were looking really good. And then <laughs> you do this project called The Deepest Place, Suffering and the Formation of Hope. And I, I know Rebecca's in her book, Building a Resilient Life, there's so much we learn through the suffering, and and a lot of life is suffering, and a lot of people maybe have an expectation about life that's just maybe wrong, um, that causes them to feel like when they go through suffering, it's it's a crisis that they're never supposed to experience. But you really write a lot about how to engage in our suffering and and what what is to be gleaned when we walk through suffering and why it's a part of life really, and and what it does in us. So help help our listeners understand this important counterintuitive topic and how we can think about suffering maybe differently than we naturally come to it. Yeah. You know, I, I, 
nobody has put it quite like this, like the way you just did. And it's a perfect, I like we're moving up into the right. <laughs> and then something happened. And I, I, and I will, I will tell you, I will tell you the thing that happened. I like, I'm sitting in one of our, in one of our confessional communities. And there was a person who is one of our, one of our patients who has been working at really hard things for a really long, for more than 20 years. Uh, who came to one of these, you know, yet again, another moment in which given her family of origin things. And, 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 you know, it's, it's funny how uh, we can have parents who continue to age. Uh, and if they are still, uh, you know, cognitively intact and medically intact and they can continue to age and they can continue to behave badly. You, you kind of think, gosh, by the time they get into their seventies or eighties, they would have learned a few things and this would all like, they figure things out and things would be better. But no, as it turns out, they're often not. And this person was in one of these moments and said, why is it that after 25 years of all this work, I am still having these moments? And this is a person whose life is like not anything like it was 25 years ago, 20 years ago when I first met her, like has done a ton of work, just a, a beautiful soul who, who would say that she's moved through the first three books. Hmm. And then you get to this point where you recognize that no matter how long you do the work, suffering never leaves the human condition. And it really struck me that um, uh, when I, I think it, it really jumped off the page that we, we do live in a world in which we would like to believe that everything should be moving up into the right. And that's just not the real world that we live in. We live in a world in which the culmination of the gospels, I mean, the amount of time that, the, you know, the ink on the page, of the gospels culminates not with beauty and goodness, but with crucifixion. Like, what's that about? How is that the thing that's happening? Everything was going so well. And then we have this. And you come to find, Gabe, that like the Christian story of all the stories that are in the world, the Christian story is the one story that actually honors suffering. It honors it. Eastern metaphysics goes a long way in doing what we can to ultimately believe that suffering doesn't really exist. So, you know, it's a function of my mind. And I'm going to do what I can to just escape it. Western metaphysics comes along and says, we're going to do everything we can with modern science to get rid of it. But in both parties, we only see shame as a, I mean, we only see suffering as a bad thing. And if it's happening, there's something wrong with the world that needs to be corrected. When the Christian story comes along and says, in fact, suffering is the experience we would expect from a world that we would expect this to be a world's response that was intended for such beauty and goodness and grandeur, but has gone the way that it has gone. Suffering is going to be the natural response. This agony that Paul writes about in Romans 8, that the entire world is groaning. It's not just you and me, but the world is groaning and God does not turn away from it. God does not see suffering and condemn it as being bad. In Jesus, God comes to find the blind guy. In Jesus, God comes to find the woman with the bleeding problem. And when she already, she has, like, she has a plan for her healing. And Jesus says, stop. 
because stopping the bleeding isn't enough because that's not the worst of what's happening for her. That catches her off guard. She comes with fear and trembling. Who knew that healing would be so disruptive to a person's life? This sense that Jesus enters into our suffering and honors it such that the very act of God entering our suffering redeems the suffering itself and lets suffering become part of how God is going to turn us into people of greater love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. People whose glory is brighter and denser than we could imagine. Not because suffering is good, not because God thinks this is a good idea, but because nothing in the world, no matter how awful it is, there's nothing that God is not going to redeem and actually use as a way of redemption itself. Because this is the God that we serve. And the way that we enter into this is once again through community. We enter into a way of allowing suffering to transform us while itself will be transformed because we are members of the body of Christ who are not going to leave the room when the suffering gets to its worst place. It's a beautiful, beautiful description of the Christian story and the human story, really, and, and the way God's designed us to function in a broken world. And I love how we ended on community. I mean, back to this idea, we can't do it alone. We can't suffer alone. We weren't meant to suffer alone. Jesus is coming for us, but man, when Jesus shows up through a friend, through someone else in our world that can sit with us and talk with us and relate and attune, um, we feel rescued and we, we feel that sense of rescue that's ultimately him coming for us. And it's a beautiful thing. And I, I would just, just one last word, Gabe, I would say it, it is therein that our hope is formed. Hmm. It's therein that hope that Paul writes about. Uh, it is not a thing, therefore, that just falls out of the sky. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It is a thing for which we have agency to co-create with others in response to our suffering by persevering and becoming people that we wouldn't have imagined being unless I'm willing to allow those who can love me to be in this space of suffering and they allow me to be in their space of suffering such that we as a community cut together collectively become these little crucibles that form hope that the world can see when everything else they look around and look at seems so utterly hopeless. This becomes the community that tells the world a different story. Man, that's powerful. Well, thank you, Kurt. Thanks for continuing to stretch all of us in our ways of approaching the unique way God's designed us, the way our stories are playing out, the importance of taking time to invest in reflecting on our stories, but ultimately how that is meant to be a way that God wants to show up in so many people around us to experience his love and his peace and his ability to be with. So we appreciate you. Thank you. You bet, man. Thanks. Great to be with you. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Kurt. I mean, what a sweet, sweet man. Somebody who truly loves the people that he's talking to, that he's caring for, even for you that has been listening, like deep in his heart. He just wants to help all of us grapple with some of these deeper ideas that that maybe we just never were taught or never had the opportunity with our own parents to discover and to play out. Well, I can tell you, it's never too late. Let this just be the beginning of more and more ways that you can be encouraged to reflect, to journal. I, I journaled yesterday, in fact. It had been a little while for me, and I, I found that the writing down of what I was experiencing, that it helps me make sense. And, and, and when I can make sense, I don't feel so crazy. 
I feel like things start to fall into order and the chaos goes away. So take simple steps away from the day. And, and that may be journaling and reflecting, but it also might mean spending a moment with your kids, spending time with someone you loved, attuning to them, asking the deeper questions about what are they walking through and how can you just be in this space with them? Well, I hope this has encouraged you. I want to remind you as you're making your plans over these next couple of weeks for Thanksgiving, know that the Friendsgiving guide is available at RebeccaLyons.com slash Friendsgiving. And if you're looking for some great recipes, a simple way to make turkey that tastes so delicious, I think you'll enjoy seeing Rebecca's recipe there. And until next time, we hope you have a wonderful week.